This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moylady McLean and tonight I'm joined by Helena, aka the streamer No Justice, MTG. How are you doing? You're right. I'm doing pretty well today. So coming up later tonight, journalists and citizens speak out from inside the Gaza siege. There's also reports of medics who are being, quote, intentionally targeted by Israel. And Labour's Emily Thornbury refuses to condemn the potential breaking of international law. Stay tuned for all of that. Of course, as always, let me know your thoughts on tonight's stories on the YouTube Super Chat. You can also tweet me on the hashtag Navara Live. We really want to hear from you. First story. The Israeli siege of Gaza continues with Palestinians in the territory denied food and water. They are now solely relying on private generators for electricity after Gaza's only power station ran out of fuel. As a humanitarian crisis grows, Israel's energy minister posted this on social media. Humanitarian aid to Gaza. No electrical switch will be turned on. No water hydrant will be opened. And no fuel truck will enter until the Israeli abductees are returned home. Humanitarian for humanitarian. And no one will preach as morals. I don't think that is what humanitarian means. More than 100 Israeli hostages are thought to still be being held by Hamas in locations across Gaza. The group has threatened to start executions if civilian homes are bombed without warning. Of course, that's exactly what's happening. Rockets continue to fall on Gaza, with the Gazan Health Authority now reporting more than 1,400 Palestinian deaths. 447 of them are said to be children. There are also more than 6,000 injured. Access to medical treatment is being made increasingly difficult due to the lack of power and limited clean water. Hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops have also now begun to amass on the border with Gaza as the country prepares for a likely ground invasion. This siege and bombardment is a response to the horrific attacks on Israeli civilians carried out by Hamas militants on Saturday. More than 1,300 Israelis, including children, are now confirmed to have died in what was an absolutely brutal onslaught. Speaking to reporters, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, gave this justification for the current Gazan offensive. With all due respect, if you have a missile in your goddamn kitchen and you want to shoot it at me, am I allowed to defend myself? Yes, no one that's is, the situation. No one is the These right missiles are there. Yourself. These missiles are launched. The button is pressed. Okay. The missile comes out from the kitchen yeah. onto my children. But, but the question is this. Ultimately, you can't remove the people of Gaza. They're going to be stuck in this neighborhood. So we like have to fight. What do you want us to do? Well, so we tell them get out and we fight against the launchers. Eventually? What happens eventually? Right? Once this war is over now, you're going to have to live with them side by side. Absolutely. What's the plan? The plan is we have to make sure the Hamas will not be able to repeat this again. That is the plan. That's what we are trying to do. And if you with all the respect, I see nations fighting terror. Okay? Many decent nations, when they fight terror, they fight terror. We are fighting terror. Humanity has to decide. Are we accommodating terror or are we fighting terror? We are fighting terror. And we saw the worst atrocity possible. We see the worst atrocity possible by a whole campaign of a movement which has major support with our neighbors. Major. Major. They believe. Many people believe in it. 
I agree, there are many, many innocent Palestinians who don't agree to this. But unfortunately, in their homes, there are missiles sh shooting at us, at my children, at the entire nation of Israel. We have to defend ourselves. We have the full right to do so. And it's about time that the world understands it. This is the tragedy of using terror. And terror has no, there's no mercy to terror. Well, the world doesn't seem very opposed to it because U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Israel where he met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In a joint press conference, Blinken confirmed U.S. support for Israel saying this. Israel has the right, indeed the obligation, to defend itself and to ensure that this never happens again. As the Prime Minister and I discussed, how Israel does this matters. We democracies distinguish ourselves from terrorists by striving for a different standard, even when it's difficult, and holding ourselves to account when we fall short. Our humanity, the value that we place on human life and human dignity, that's what makes us who we are. And we count them among our greatest strength. That's why it's so important to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. And that's why we mourn the loss of every innocent life, civilians of every faith, every nationality, who've been killed. Blatantly not true, what he just said then, that they mourn the lives of every person of every nationality who's been killed. Uh, we've talked about the rhetoric that's been involved in this, that's made it very obvious that is actually not the position or, or the case at all. Um, now, British Foreign Secretary James Cleverley has also been in the region. At a press conference with Israeli Foreign Secretary Eli Cohen, he was asked about the ongoing blockade of Gaza. Mr. Cleverly, Channel 4 News, quick question. Horrific, horrific scenes here. Also grim scenes in Gaza. I wonder, do you have any concerns about the nature and scale of the Israeli response to this awful attack? Many people do across the world. Well, I, 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 I've said back when I was in the UK that, of course, Israel has a right to self-defense. And, of course, Israel has a right to uh, try and regain those people who have been uh, kidnapped. Uh, when I was in Israel a few weeks ago, of course, we discussed the security situation. We discussed uh, Israel's uh, work to uh, minimize civilian casualties. But of course, what we do know is that uh, Hamas habitually embeds its military target, uh, sorry, its military capabilities, its terrorist capabilities within civilian populations. Um, what, we, what, we, uh, what we want to see is uh, as few casualties as possible. Is that of happening? Course. Hundreds of, of children have of, died? There's blockade we, on fuel? We actually lost 1,200 people that murdered young people in the dancing party that they were shooting. Entire family that murdered one by one. Innocent people. We are living close to monsters, to inhuman people. And we are fighting for our home and we will win. Thank you. We will continue. I know that Michael talked a bit about this yesterday, but that language, the monsters, inhuman people, it's all very straightforwardly dehumanizing language that is providing a clear blanket and rationale for the wide-scale immiseration of Palestinian citizens who have absolutely nothing to do with the Hamas attacks. Now, meanwhile, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has met with Jordan's King Abdullah. He said this. 
We reject the practices of killing civilians or abusing them on both sides because they contravene morals, religion and international law. We renounce violence and adhere to international legitimacy, peaceful popular resistance and political action as a path to achieving our national goals. You are right that we are all gripped with grief. Like uh, most Israelis, I woke up Saturday morning to the sound of sirens, running to take shelter with our two small daughters, uh, opening up our phones to scroll through the news apps to hear uh, horrific uh, news about attacks on Israeli towns in the south of Israel. And as hours went by, more and more news came out of uh, people who were killed in their homes, of children, of elderly, of women, of men, uh, non-combatants, civilian population, many of them. And uh, these things hit us personally. Israel is a small country, and uh, almost everyone I know has someone in his near surroundings, a family member, a friend, uh, a co-worker, a colleague uh, who was involved personally, had some of his family members killed or someone who was known killed or missing or abducted to Gaza. So it really hits Israeli civil population uh, very powerfully in a very hurt, hurtful manner. And this grief that we are feeling uh, for the loss that we had, uh, for me, is compounded with the fear of what will happen in the coming days. We've already heard about hundreds of Gazans killed in uh, Israeli warplanes striking the Gaza Strip. And uh, knowing from the past these escalations lead to more and more bloodshed of innocent people. So grief is compounded with fear, and uh, we are expecting um, very difficult times ahead. Prominent Israeli voices and media have pretty strongly condemned Benjamin Netanyahu for his policy towards both Palestine and Gaza and Hamas in the past. Is that reflective of a wider feeling? Many people have been critical of the policies of Netanyahu. Prominent Israeli ministers visited, for example, the funerals of citizens slain, found themselves being heckled and attacked by Israelis at these funerals who leveled accusations against them for, uh, for their policies vis-a-vis the security of the Israeli population. And Netanyahu himself is, went on the record in 2019 talking about Hamas as an asset of Israel. Uh, he said to his Likud party members that if you want to bury the idea of a Palestinian state alongside Israel, you need to strengthen Hamas. And indeed, his government in the past few years had funneled uh, millions of dollars, most of them from Qatar and other, um, and other countries in the region, towards Hamas, thus propelling it into its uh, political position in the Gaza Strip and in the Palestinian arena. So yes, there is a sentiment of accusation towards Netanyahu. There's a drop in his popularity, and many more people have become critical about his policies uh, towards the Palestinians and towards Hamas in particular. What attitudes are emerging about the Israeli state response to Gaza, to, they say, Hamas? Uh, You know, the bombings, the blockade, the potential ground invasion. You talked a bit about fear at one point. Is there support, opposition, division? The response of the Israeli government ministers has been mostly a hawkish one. Uh, Ministers spoke about collective punishment of the Gaza civil population, about cutting electricity and running water, something that has already happened, which is, of course, a war crime. It's against international law and, of course, a heinous crime towards the families, the children in Gaza 
who are now suffering not only the lack of basic resources, but also the bombing from the air, uh, risking and uh, taking many innocent lives. Um, what we in the peace movement in Israel say, and it is a voice that resonates with some parts of the Israeli society, is that further escalation in Gaza, another round of bloodletting in Gaza, will not bring security to the Israeli population, like previous rounds of bloodletting in 2014, in 2009. Every two or three years, another round of escalation initiated uh, in the Gaza Strip, taking the lives of innocent Palestinians and Israelis. And this has not brought security to the Israeli population up until now. And this new round of bloodletting will not bring a change to that effect. The only way to guarantee the security of the people in the region is through negotiation through ceasefire and through a peaceful solution based on UN resolution that will end with ending the occupation and establishing a Palestinian state alongside Israel. True, it remains a long-term prospect as our region further goes towards a path of violence, uh, but it still remains the only prospect of a way out because we know that there can't be a military solution to a political conflict. And the current situation is such that the government, or the Israeli government, is pushing for a military so-called solution. And it is for us, the Israeli peace movement, the anti-occupation activists, to raise our voices inside our own society, to build public opinion in opposition to that, and to make the demand made that security for us cannot mean another round of war like we had in the past. As you say, this is a really critical time to make those arguments, to argue for that de-escalation, to argue for the end of the occupation. How much do you think the peace movement will cut through? You talked about the anger that is felt at Netanyahu, at the policies, at this idea that the occupation has actually not brought security, has instead brought bloodshed and violence. Are there, is this a chance for those arguments to actually be heard at an even wider level in Israeli society? And Do you think they will be? In May 2021, in the biggest, the big previous round of escalation in the south, uh, following the settlers' attack in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, the attacks on Al-Aqsa, the bombing in Gaza Strip, violence erupted within Israeli society itself, between uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel, with racism reaching a peak. Uh, we in the Israeli peace movement are now organizing on the ground uh, to anticipate such a dangerous development, and to lay a civic infrastructure that would de-escalate such a situation before it erupts. In Tel Aviv, Yaffa, where I live, almost 3,000 uh, people in this, both the Jewish and Palestinian residents have joined a Jewish-Arab Partnership Guard, a new ad hoc grassroots formation aimed at, um, at uh, de-escalating the situation in our city, uh, standing against racist pronouncement by officials, and uh, helping people organize around this cause of anti-racism. Hundreds, close to 500 residents of Tel Aviv have joined an emergency zoo meeting to organize for that, and dozens of them have underwent training to prepare them for the coming few weeks in which racist extremist elements will try to um, raise havoc in the streets, attack Arab residents simply for the fact that they are Arab, and, uh, and bring the violence that the Israeli government so uh, so uh, hardly wants to push forward to bring it into Israeli cities. For me, this is a source of optimism that in our society, in this very dangerous moment, as we are all gripped with fear and grief, 
There are many people who are looking towards anti-racist organizing of Jewish and Palestinian residents together. And this is both a show of optimism and a show of the possibilities inside Israeli society to plot a course that is different from the one that the government tries to push forward. Naturally, in times of war, the government beats the drums of war. Mainstream media follows through. Spineless politicians stand in line. And this affects the, 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 the atmosphere and uh, the way people perceive things. But we are not helpless in the face of that. Uh, people can organize, movements can recruit, and this is what we are trying to do inside Israeli society, and our message resonates within parts of it. What do you make of the Western allies like the US, like Britain, who've been lining up to say that the Israeli state, that Netanyahu's government, have an absolute right to defend themselves and even have said, you know, refuse to comment on whether it's breaking international law that, that, that Gaza's being carpet bombed or that there's a blockade going on and instead have reverted to this line that whatever the Israeli state thinks is right, they should do in response to Hamas's attacks? I think that every honest person in the world who saw the images and the testimonies from the uh, attacks on the Israeli civil population, naturally, their heart goes out uh, for people who suffered such a violence. But supporting Israel and supporting Israelis is not the same thing. Supporting the current Israeli government with its current policies is actually against the interest of the of the Israeli citizens against the interest of the Israeli civic population. If someone really wants to stand with the people in Israel to safeguard uh, their future and their well-being, then they must be in deep criticism of the policies of Netanyahu government. Uh, when I see world leaders give carte blanche to the policies of the Israeli government, I don't feel that they are allies with me that they uh, push forward a policy that would safeguard me. Rather, I think that they strengthen the government that is bent on the, on the, um, setting up the region in flames, jeopardizing me and my security and my family. I think solidarity with uh, the people in Israel means harsh criticism towards the Israeli government. Like I think solidarity with the Palestinian people in the occupied territories must also, mean, must also mean strong condemnation of Hamas militants who um, soiled the just cause of Palestinian freedom with, and independence with uh, heinous crimes against Israeli uh, civil population. Do you see a path forward to de-escalation at this moment? And what would it take if governments from around the world are egging on the Israeli state? Like you said correctly, many governments throughout the world uh, embrace Netanyahu and Netanyahu's policies. Therefore, when I try to see a way forward, I don't look upon governments, I look upon people. I look upon the people in my own society, the Israeli society, that we organized for them to, uh, um, to be in opposition to the hawkish policies of our own government. And I look uh, for the people around the world, for the people in the UK, for the people in Europe, for the people throughout the world, for the peace and solidarity movement that we see as our partners. And we want them to be in support with us, the Palestinians and the Israelis whose lives are being jeopardized, and to do so by being critical towards the policies of Netanyahu and his government, by raising our voices high against 
them beating the drums of war, them bombing Gaza, them placing the Gaza Strip under an illegal siege. Uh, but to also be very honest and to turn also a blaming finger towards the Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip, that by uh, attacking indiscriminately uh, Israelis without regard of who holds arms and who is not, who is a citizen and who is a soldier, by attacking also families and children and the elderly, had uh, given uh, a great deal of uh, international backing and support to the Israeli government to, to launch its recent escalation. So the solidarity of the people throughout the world for Palestinians and Israelis need not go to the official Israeli uh, government and leadership, nor to the Palestinian leadership, but to regular people who live regular lives and whose lives are now being jeopardized by, um, by politicians who look beyond our daily interests. I just want to take a moment to say thank you to each and every one of you who's taken the time to go to navaramedia.com forward slash support to back our journalism. We're now a fifth, yeah, a fifth of the way to reaching our end of year fundraising goal. And we're working really, really hard to bring you the coverage that mainstream media just totally fails to provide. So if you can, please consider making a donation via our website to help us get ready for 2024. We rely on your support to fund our work. And that can be from as little as one pound a month. It can be an hour's wage. It could be a one-off donation. Either way, thank you very, very much. Let's go to our next story. Israel may have placed Gaza under siege, but that hasn't stopped information from inside the Palestinian territory getting out. Journalists and citizens inside Gaza have been posting first-hand accounts of life under Israeli attack, as well as pleas to the international community for assistance. Elizabeth el Nakla is a British woman now trapped in Gaza. She also happens to be the mother-in-law of Scottish First Minister Hamza Yousaf. She sent this message to the Times. I'm currently in Derbella with my husband's family, my family, my grandchildren. We've no electricity, we've no water. The food we do have, which is little, will not last because there's no electric and it will spoil. I have four grandchildren in this home, a two-month-old baby, a four-year-old, and today, two nine-year-old twins, their birthday. I ask the world to help Palestinians. Plestia Alakad is a Palestinian journalist who's been documenting her life under siege from inside Gaza. She posted this clip on social media. Okay, during great times, all the neighbors, they just leave their door open so you can just enter your neighbor's house, it's okay. For my neighbors, they didn't evacuate as well. They have their windows down, here are their windows. And here is the family, they're gathering all together also in a place far away from the wind. I was trying to explain things, but I think you can hear them now. I'll go check on my parents. Now. 
We're inside the house right now and literally we can't breathe. That's the view from the window and I can't keep it open. That's the view from the balcony. There is literally <coughs> no view. You can't see anything. Alakad also posted this compilation of footage of a day under bombardment. So it's around 12 p.m. right now. Still no electricity, no internet. My battery is at 2%. My parents are still asleep. So yeah, that's the update for now. I found really close to my house. That's my window right now. That's the view. People in the street are calling for ambulance, but there is no ambulance. Here is the window. Yeah, and literally the whole window is down. We can hear the sound of airplanes. We're all gathering at our neighbor's house. No internet, no electricity until now. It's around 7 p.m. We literally don't know what's happening in the world. We're just listening to bombs. No one knows anything, literally. Our house is basically burning behind my back. This was Alakad's post from the fourth day of the siege. I'm trying to explain the situation, but I don't know what to say exactly. The more I walk, the speechless I get. Okay, so here is my building. I'll get in and I'll keep you updated. It's really dark because there is no electricity, of course, and the smell is really bad. It's important to clarify that my house wasn't completely bombed or it didn't completely cut a fire. Like, it can be fixed. And right now I'm at my neighbor's house. They're not in their house and their house is still like that. The view. Of course I can't breathe, so I'm getting out. I also found this. I thought maybe it's the evil eye. So I took it. You know, I used to thought my grandparents were exaggerating when talking about Nakba 1948. But 2023, we're literally living it right now. We're walking to the hospital. Helena, you know the power of the internet in being able to give a platform to people providing alternative perspectives. What will happen? if the blackout finally silences these voices coming out of Gaza? 
The thing with these kind of conflicts is that we tend to look at them continually through the prism of geopolitics, right? The prism of the causes of why the war was happening or for the overall solutions to actually ending the crisis itself. But one thing that can get lost is the real effects on real people, right? And this is what, in the age of direct communication, as you mentioned with the internet age of getting this information out, we suddenly have a much more close up and um, much more direct contact with the genuine, real human cost of these kind of conflicts. We saw it when the, with the war in Ukraine, with images coming out of the eastern oblasts in Ukraine and the results of the shelling of places like Mariupol and what happened to people in Bukha and Kupiansk and places like that. So we really have in for the first time in quite a while had real direct communication with people on the ground who we do we do see the real effects of conflicts like these obviously we have correctly and justly seen the direct effect of those who were um under attack by militants in israel in the kibbutzim in, in the negev and in the cities surrounding the gaza strip because their humanity is obviously incredibly important but Unless people also see the other side in Gaza, we, they well, they can be complicity in the dehumanization that we have seen from certain commentators and from certain political actors as well. And it helps us fight against that dehumanization. the public completely insulated from reality of what certain political and geopolitical actions are, are taken in response. We think whether you, whether you can see the difference between a the shelling or a, a ground invasion. Unless you have people on the ground telling you the impact of these things, it's very easy to be able to remove yourself from it and to be able to compartmentalise the effects of something that can be very simple to explain, but very difficult to understand. Let's go on to our next story. As you've seen there, Israel's bombing campaign in Palestine continues. Gaza's health ministry is reporting at least 1,200 people have been killed with 5,600 people wounded at last count. And those numbers are only increasing. The total blockade that Gaza is under means that hospitals have no power, no clean water and shortage of everything from bandages to life-saving medication. Despite this, healthcare workers are continuing to battle through the constant shelling to reach the injured and dying but they themselves are facing extreme peril. Doctors Without Borders, aka Médecins Sans Frontières, say 16 medical personnel have been killed in Gaza since Saturday. In addition, 18 ambulances have been destroyed and eight medical facilities damaged. Human humanitarian organisations working in the area say that this is probably no accident. They believe medical workers are being deliberately targeted by Israeli forces, of course, this is a war crime. Palestine Red Crescent Society is an aid organisation currently fielding health workers in Gaza. Four PRCS paramedics were killed in two separate incidents on Wednesday. These three men are called Yassi Al-Masi, Khalil Al-Sharif and Ahmed Daman. They were all killed when their PRCS ambulance was hit by an Israeli airstrike in northern Gaza. This is Hatem Awad. He was the fourth PRCS medic killed. PRCS Awad was given the, quote, green light by Israeli forces to go to a location in eastern Gaza. But once there, his ambulance was bombed and he was killed. 
PRCS have accused Israel of, quote, intentionally targeting these healthcare workers. In a statement, they said this. Targeting medical personnel is a grave breach to international humanitarian law and humanity. PRCS demands accountability for this war crime, urging immediate investigation and justice for the victims. Now, this is by no means the first time Israeli forces have been accused of deliberately targeting healthcare workers in the occupied Palestinian territories. Navarra Media published a report by Daisy Schofield in August 2023. It detailed attacks made on medical personnel in Palestinian territory. Interviewees said they'd had their ambulances come under fire, including having engines shot at to disable vehicles. Now, before the current war broke out, the PRCS had been recording incidents of Israeli soldiers physically assaulting medics and targeting ambulances with live ammunition, rubber bullets and tear gas canisters. In total, across 2023, there were 193 incidents targeting healthcare staff and vehicles. This is a 310% increase compared with the same period last year. Of course, it is very difficult to prove the deliberate targeting of personnel protected under international law when they're in a conflict-ridden zone. Bombs are dropping, bullets are flying. We saw this with the killing of Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akla in the West Bank earlier this year. Multiple international investigations have now concluded she was deliberately targeted by Israeli snipers, but in the immediate aftermath and still, Israel has denied this and repeatedly attempted to obscure the circumstances of Abu Akla's death, arguing among other excuses that she was killed in crossfire. This has seemingly been disproved by several investigations. So humanitarian organisation Medical Aid for Palestinians told Navarra Media it is particularly difficult to get justice for healthcare workers killed in Gaza. They said this. MAP has been reporting on incidents of attacks on healthcare workers with our partners, including Al Mezan Center for Human Rights in Gaza, since 2014. Attacks on healthcare workers occur routinely and are rarely, if ever, investigated, and those responsible enjoy blanket impunity. These latest deadly attacks on health workers in Gaza illustrate a continuing and systematic disregard for the inter for international humanitarian law and the sanctity of health workers and facility. In addition to that, Gaza is facing a huge shortage of healthcare specialists in general. Mahmoud Shalabi is leading the emergency response in Gaza for MAP, and he exclusively told Navarra Media this. Gaza has been facing a healthcare worker shortage since before this escalation started. In every assessment that Medical Aid for Palestinians has done for any medical subspeciality in the past eight years, one of the main findings was that there were not enough subspecialists. I'm talking about doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, laboratory technicians, radiographers, the list continues. This is due to the political rift between Gaza and Ramallah, which has been caused mainly by the occupation. Staff working inside the hospitals are working longer shifts and they are exhausted much of the time. In addition, they don't get enough salaries to begin with. The majority of them get between 40 to 60% of their salaries, so their morale is low. They are already fatigued and the majority of them don't have alternative sources of income. One of the things that the Gazan Ministry of Health called on on the fourth day of the aggression was that for anyone who held a nursing degree, 
even if they weren't employed, as long as they had passed the nursing exam, to please volunteer at the nearest hospital that is located near them. So yes, there is a huge shortage of doctors, nurses, and all the medical subspecialities. This is affecting the patients in Gaza badly. Helena, if this is yet another example of a war crime on Israel's part, one that has been ongoing potentially for years, why is the plight of healthcare workers so overlooked? There is obviously um, a long history of Western nations ignoring these kind of things when these are done by our uh, geopolitical allies. I would like to draw attention, though, to one case in which this was brought up, actually. the Specifically, the targeting of healthcare workers was brought up in the House of Commons. This was back in 2019, and the shadow foreign secretary at the time was talking about an incident in which a medic who was called Tarek Lubani, a Canadian medic who was in Gaza at the time. This was during the protests in 2018 uh, that were organised around the blockade. And this medical worker was tending to someone's wounds that he had looked at and seen that there were IDF snipers who were um, potentially aiming uh, at, at the protesters at the time. And then when he'd, when he'd gone down to help someone, he'd been shot through both of his legs as a healthcare worker. The paramedic who came over to then treat his wounds was then shot by another IDF sniper just an hour later or later on that day. So this was covered in a 2019 UN report around the actions of the IDF in Gaza. And this particular report was brought up by the foreign secretary along with that same anecdote that I have just spoken about just then. And this was in response to the Conservative Party abstaining on a vote to recognise the contents of that United Nations report. Now, it is important to understand that there was plenty that there was a very there was a period in this nation's history where there was indeed a political party who was gravely concerned with the plight of Palestinians and to scrutinize even our own geopolitical allies when they do engage in war crimes. What I will say though is that that foreign the shadow foreign secretary in particular was Emily Thornbury. And I think she might be very relevant to our next story. Relevant indeed. That is a a fascinating look at how politics is going to move on, which we will cover now. Now, we've already talked about Labour leader Keir Starmer's endorsement of Israel's right to blockade Gaza. He maintained this stance, even though the blockade is collective punishment, aka an established war crime prohibited by international law. Here's a reminder of what Starmer said on Nick Ferrari's LBC show earlier this week. I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself. Um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power? Cutting off water? Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law. Now, another member of Labour's cabinet has doubled down on support for this blockade, and it's Emily Thornbury, aka the Shadow Attorney General, who was the former Shadow Foreign Secretary who was pushing for a UN report on Palestine to be recognised. Now, Thornbury's changed her tack since because she was on Wednesday's edition of Newsnight and was asked by presenter Victoria Derbyshire whether the blockade was against international law. Here's what Emily Thornbury said. But I mean, I don't. They've know. already cut off the food. I, I hear what you're saying, but what I'm saying is that is against that... international law. It's really simple. Sakir Starmer no, doesn't simp- seem to think it is. What is simple 
is that whatever actions are taken by a democracy, it has to be done in, in accordance with international law. Do, and we have so heard tonight from the, prime, from the, from the President of the United States that he has been on the phone to Netanyahu and both of them have agreed that democracies need to act in accordance with international okay. law. Pause there, if I may. Do you think cutting off food, water and electricity is within international law? I think that Israel has an absolute right to defend itself That's against terrorism. That's not the question I asked. It is an answer to the question that, that you've asked, and I think it's an appropriate one at this time. Why won't you answer whether you think it's in line with international law or not? Because I've tried to answer, and I've tried to, 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 I've tried to say that we've already heard from your previous guest about what might be happening on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're now on day four. And so it, we hear that there are, there are troops massing on the border. There may well be an incursion. In the, in, immediately before an incursion, then as the permanent representative have said, that it might be appropriate in those circumstances for there to be the sort of action that we've heard about. And then the, then the, then the invasion afterwards. I don't know because at the moment we're in the middle of a hot war and, and Israel is in the middle of defending itself. And we have to stand with Israel just like we would expect people to stand with us if we were the victims of terrorism as well. Painful to watch that round the Hannels' ramble, which obviously is not an answer to Victoria Darbush's question of whether the blockade is against international humanitarian law, because that question requires a simple yes or no answer. And we already have one of those. In 2020, the UN Special Rapporteur to the Palestinian Occupied Territories published a report on Israel's ongoing blockade. That report clearly stated that the blockade qualified as collective punishment and was, indeed, against international law. From the report, the extent of the devastating impact of Israel's collective punishment policy can be most strikingly seen in its ongoing 13-year-old closure of Gaza, which now suffers from a completely collapsed economy, devastated infrastructure and a barely functioning social service system. While Israel's justification for imposing the closure on Gaza was to contain Hamas and ensure Israel's security, the actual impact of the closure has been the destruction of Gaza's economy, causing immeasurable suffering to its 2 million inhabitants. Collective punishment has been clearly forbidden under international humanitarian law through Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. No exceptions are permitted. So in 2020, the UN said Israel's blockade was in breach of international law. Now that blockade has been stepped up. So it hasn't de-escalated, it hasn't decreased, it has been stepped up. And yet, two former top human rights lawyers do not seem to be able to recognise that that might still violate the very legislation that in the same breath they say needs to be upheld during these hostilities. Now, some of Labour's activists are not happy about Starmer's comments. Uh, Ali Milani is a former Labour candidate and sits on the National Executive Committee of Labour Muslim Network. He spoke to LBC about Starmer's stance. It shouldn't take someone to be an expert in international law to know that the starving of 2.2 million people uh, half of whom are children of water, of power, of food, power to hospitals, is inhumane and it's wrong. Uh, and I'm really sorry that my Labour leader was sat in a chair next to you um, and he endorsed this activity. Collective punishment under international law is a war crime. Uh, and so it, we were desperately disappointed. And the only thing I can think of is, is that my leader either misspoke uh, in which case he should apologise, retract his comments and clarify his position. Or 
and I'm really sorry to say this, he doesn't see the humanity in Palestinian lives. Labour Muslim Network have also released a statement calling for Starmer to retract his LBC comments and apologise. It reads, Sir Keir Starmer's comments on LBC today endorse plans for the collective punishment of 2.2 million people in the Gaza Strip. Collective punishment is a war crime. Cutting off power and water to hospitals and life-serving facilities is a war crime. No government, no army, and no country can ever be above international law. We ask you directly, Sir Keir, retract your comments, apologise to Palestinians, and meet urgently with Palestinian organisations in the UK, Labour Muslim Network, and the Muslim Council of Britain. Helena, if the UN can recognise the blockade as collective punishment, and, you know, Shadow Foreign Secretary iteration of Emily Thornberry can, why can't current 2023 Shadow Attorney General Emily Thornberry and Sir Keir Starmer recognise it as collective punishment? The thing about Labour currently is you have to view everything through the lens of they they're only, their driving message behind everything they do, their reasoning is about getting elected at all costs. And we've seen the level to which that they will let their morals, they will let their principles completely lie by the wayside in pursuit of that very specific goal of getting elected. And given the current media landscape we have, the current rhetoric we have around what the Labour Party is like, consistently they have been not just, obviously we had the the period in where there was the investigation uh, over anti-Semitism within the party, people can have whatever opinions they want on that specifically, but there is obviously still to this day a level to which members of the Labour front bench will continually be asked, well you were there, you were there trying to make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister at a time at which there was perceived anti-Semitism and recorded cases of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party as well. So they they know full well that they, they even if they their moral scruples would would push them towards condemning such actions as war crimes, they know that once they put one one foot out of line, suddenly the media can then bring up the fact that there was a time in which they were trying to get somebody who said, quote unquote, uh, our friends at Hamas into the office of prime minister in this country. And so they they are too scared of the media, they're too scared of the narrative that could be drawn around any potential potential, um, recognition of war crimes as being as such, given that we know we know full well that they know these are war crimes, given their given their background, uh, as in their in their vocations, they must know. So it's a clear it's a clear decision from them to ensure that they can uh, leapfrog the media in beating these accusations at the by completely discarding all of their moral principles. And you've got to think whether one of somebody like that who can put aside their moral principles just to get elected as someone who you think that you can vote for. I would also like to point out as well, there is certain electoral consequences, however. It's not all uh, entirely going to be electorally positive for Labour to uh, abandon in such clear terms the plight of the Palestinians against explicit war crimes from uh, the state, the government of Israel, the state of Israel itself. And that is that there is a large proportion of the Labour voting base who are Muslims. And the issue of Palestine, along with things like, for example, Kashmir, these are large issues, large voting issues for a base, a a population base, a demographic base that Labour has relied on electorally for a very, very long time. We have already seen that we have evidence already of the potential for this to go to leave Labour in a position where they're going to start losing votes in the next election. When we saw the Batley and Spen by-election, where 
there was the Workers' Party of Great Britain, led by George Galloway, attacking Labour by trying to appeal to disillusioned Muslim Labour voters over the party's changing stance on Palestine and Kashmir, etc., etc. Then they got 20-odd percent of the vote, over 20 percent of the vote in that by-election, as well as essentially a new party. They very rarely stand candidates from the Workers' Party of Great Britain, who are taking not only a, uh, a pro kind of pro-Palestine approach to politicking to win over these voters from the Muslim community. They've also taken a stance um, against free, like, things like trans rights, which is scary for me personally, if they start becoming a major force in electoral politics. So it's not without consequence them abandoning this long-held position of the party that kept a huge demographic on side. And I do worry about the potential that that has, not just for electoral consequences, but for, for civil consequences as well. We obviously have reached out to Labour for clarification on the party's stance on collective punishment. We're yet to hear a response. But I just wanted to pick up on what you said there, Helena. Uh, obviously, Labour is seeking to be the next government. Keir Starmer is likely to be the next leader of the UK. Emily Thornberry, if she stays in her post, will be the UK's most powerful lawyer. Yet both seem to have endorsed an unambiguous war crime. You obviously can't pick and choose when war crimes are allowed, depending on who it happens to. The brutal massacre of civilians by Hamas was a war crime. The blockade and bombardment of Gaza is also a war crime. Um, you talked a bit about the electoral uh, consequence of this, but you know you've got Tories attacking the European Convention of Human Rights on one hand. You've got Labour bigwigs who seem to be you know, completely ignoring international human rights law, depending on who they're allied with. As I saw one person suggest... Is this the end of a post-war consensus on human rights? I mean, I would have to say kind of what consensus? It seems to be a very loose consensus up to this point, insofar as our recognition of human rights only goes so far as recognising the human rights of allies of the West and completely ignoring the plight of those who aren't our allies or indeed ignoring human rights violations of those who are our geopolitical allies, for example. Um, there's been plenty of times in which, I mean, Look at you can take Palestine as an example. There have been ongoing human rights violations. It gets very little coverage. Uh, it's been given kind of tacit support by so much of our media and political class for so long that to the idea that there was this a grand consensus that appealed in all cases is clearly not true. It's not true. I mean, how long has the blockade lasted? And there's been only very small sections of society that have seen this issue for such a long time. In fact, it almost certainly shows just how pertinent an issue it was, given, given the situation that has arisen uh, over the last week. Now, there are plenty of other issues in which we have been a little bit more um, happy to call out our allies. So you take, for example, Mozambique in Guantanamo. But then again, how, how many times were we also committing human rights violations in so far as the war on terror being used as a justification for these things being temporarily upended. As long as you can find a geopolitical cause in which it's necessary, necessary for these things to suddenly be given the green light to be ignored, there's always going to be even further ability for Western countries to be able to further that narrative. The you, Our ally in the United States, for example, was very happy to give up people's human rights. And how many times was this called out by the, the UK government? Uh, very, very little. We, we were selling weapons to Saudi Arabia to, and whilst they were violating the human rights of people during the war in Yemen. Turkey was continually ignoring human rights so much so that the European Convention on Human Rights was, they were, or the Call of Human Rights, sorry, called out these human rights violations in Kurdistan 
in Turkey, and yet they're still a member of NATO, and we still turn a blind eye to these things, at least on a on a national scale, very often. So I find that given what we've seen about the attitude to thing pe- people dying in the channel, our asylum seekers being treated poorly, and our history in, within with regards to geopolitical conflicts in the West, this mu- to me it seems like a very loose consensus, which only applies in very certain cases. Let's go on to our next story. A former Israeli peace negotiator has criticised the British government for refusing to condemn the blockade and bombing of Gaza. Daniel Levy gave this interview to Sky News. And in what sense do you interpret the UK government as being irresponsible here? Well, it has absolutely abandoned the idea that there are rules, that there is international law that needs to be upheld. You can't hold only one party to international law whether that's in an Israeli-Palestinian conflict or or elsewhere in the world. I mean, I think we also have to step back and say, how do we look when we have taken a very particular stand, stood up for a rules-based order, stood up for international law on Russia-Ukraine, and the message from the UK government to Israel for the last days has been, do your worst. There's no such thing as the need to uh, adhere to proportionality. There's no such need thing as allowing humanitarian assistance. There's no such thing as avoiding civilian casualties because we will be told that it's Hamas's fault when civilians die in Gaza. But it's very clear that the bombings that are taking place are going to lead to, and already are leading, to mass civilian casualties. And that the people dropping those bombs are the people who are re- responsible for that. Now, what Levy is saying there is... By failing to hold the line on international law, the UK government is supporting the narrative of a right-wing Israeli government, a narrative that holds Hamas exclusively responsible for any and all violence that now erupts in the current war that is seeing citizens in Gaza killed in their thousands. And that narrative is exactly what was on evidence in this interview with former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. And what about those Palestinians in hospital who uh, are on life support and babies and incubators whose uh, life support and incubator will have to be turned off because the Israelis have cut the power to Gaza? Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's, what's wrong with you? Have you not seen what happened? We're fighting Nazis. We don't target them. Now, the world can come and bring them anything they want. If you want to bring them electricity, I'm not going to feed electricity or water to my enemies. If anyone else wants, that's fine. We're not responsible well, is, for them. This is the point. But you this keep is on, the point. You, no, no, I, I want to tell you, no, man, no, listen, listen, you no, listen to me right now. Voice, I've heard trying, you enough. No, no, I understand. We're trying to have a conversation here. Listen, this no, is my you're, program. You're, you're this is my show. And I am asking the questions. You're raising your voice. And I've asked you. And we've already, we've already stopped, please. And let me finish. We've already distinguished shame between you, Hamas. Mr. I want to tell you, you shame you're, on you. You're trying to speak over me. No, we no. are not shame on you. It's nothing about pre- shame. We're trying to have a conversation about a very serious situation because, here, because, and you are refusing you to address it. Jump over immediately and again and again. You Absolutely not. You are incorrect. They are responsible because I can tell you that when the UK, Absolutely when Great not. Britain was fighting the Nazis during World War II, no one asked what's going on in Dresden. It was the Nazis targeting London and you targeted Dresden. So Listen, shame on you if you go on with that false narrative. We're not talking about that. And, that, and in I, hindsight, I many people have... Listen, 
And in hindsight, many people have readdressed that kind of carpet bombing. Oh, oh, I see. Now you're Mr. Clean. Shame on you. Absolutely not. And I'm not. Listen, Mr. Bennett, I I am not in the military. I am a journalist asking you questions. Are you going to let me ask you a question or you continue shouting at me? We've already distinguished between Hamas and the Palestinians. I'm asking you very directly, very directly, what what is going to be done to make sure that those innocent people don't get killed as innocent Jewish people were killed on Saturday? Well, we're going to target Hamas and we're telling Hamas that if you use anyone as your human shield and you're going to shoot at us using human shields, that it's their responsibility. Listen, mister, if someone is shooting at your children and hiding behind a, a human shield, will you shoot back or not? I'm asking you a question. Someone's um, shooting I, at your children but hiding there. behind civilians. What, what's the answer? What would you do? Mr. Bennett, I'm not here to answer your questions. I've asked you your questions oh, and you have I, not I, answered I them directly. I understand. All right, so- we'll stop. We'll, we'll leave it there. The first job of any government is to keep its own citizens safe. Right? That's if there's a prime duty of a government is to... Is to keep the security of its own citizens in its mind. And that's a gigantic failure of the Likud administration to protect its own citizens through its its expansion of settlements, for example, which is only heightened tensions that has led us to this point over the last few years or so. Now, what that means is, is that you lead to the point at which right-wing figures within the Israeli government or within the Israeli uh, political scene, like Naftali Bennett, there needs to be a level to which that they can be able to wave away all criticism because it's in their political interests to do so because they know that there is plenty of political opposition within their own populations to the actions of the government that have led to the position getting into this state in the first place. In that same survey, 56% of Israelis survey said that Netanyahu should resign as soon as the war is over. So there is clearly some blame being laid at the feet of the failure in government that's led to this position in the first place. None of these things are affecting Western media and political figures who are observing this, whereas the actual people on the ground in Israel know that uh, the um, geopolitical strategy has very, very lasting effect, can have very, very traumatic and devastating effects if it's done incorrectly. And as we have discussed many times, or you on this channel have discussed many times, there are plenty of political and geopolitical failings in terms of policy from the Netanyahu administration that has heightened the tensions that's led to this point. And so people who live there, people who are going to be the ones who see the direct result of this political failure, are going to be the ones who are going to hold their own government to account in a way that there is no need for people within the West to want to undermine their own geopolitical allies in the way that that is not a concern as much for people who actually have to deal with the consequences of that failure. I just want to say a massive thank you, Helena, for joining me tonight and lending us your brilliant brain. It's not a problem at all. It's great to be here. Thank you. And thanks everyone so much for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. We'll be bringing you all the day's top stories and sticking with coverage of this conflict. But for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.